Good evening, Desert Springs. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks for taking the time and prioritizing a gathering of our church uh, and coming here tonight. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Alex Schroeder. I serve on staff overseeing discipleship ministries here at Desert Springs. I invite you tonight, if you have a Bible, we will be in Isaiah chapter 6. So I invite you to open your Bible and get ready for the reading of our word in a couple minutes. As you're turning there, I want to begin with a quote that was quite challenging to me when I first read it, and I think it was sometime in college that I first read it. If not, it was soon after. This quote is found in the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which is written by a theologian named A.W. Tozer. This is the quote. Tozer says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So this evening... I want to put that question before all of us. What comes to mind when we think about God? This week I did a quick Wikipedia search to see what answers Wikipedia had, and it gives us 27 different attributes of God. And if you don't trust Wikipedia, which I wouldn't blame you, you could go to something like the Westminster Longer Catechism. And in the one question, what is God?, The answer to that question provides 20 different attributes. So as we think of this question, what comes to mind when we think about God, we're not left without many biblical answers. But I want to press you a little bit. What should be the one first attribute that comes to our mind? What is the one thing that should bubble up to the top? What is the attribute that's most at the heart of our God's nature and essence? As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be considering Isaiah 6 tonight. And I think Isaiah 6 tells us and shows us the answer to that question. And the answer, I hope we all see, is God's holiness. His holiness. So I'm going to begin reading in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Our passage will end in verse 7. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This evening, I want us to consider three points from our passage. First, we'll see a holy God. Then we'll see an unclean man. And finally, we'll see a problem solved. Let's consider that first point, a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6 is Isaiah's call to ministry. It's his commissioning into the prophetic office. And this chapter leaves us with a number of questions. We don't know much of anything about Isaiah's life prior to this moment. We don't know how old he was. We're not even sure where this vision, where Isaiah is when this vision takes place. There's many people that debate what's going on around this moment. But there is one bit of data we have in this text that tells us something about what was going on in the life of Israel. And it's that King Uzziah died. For all we can tell through history, King Uzziah, he's also sometimes referred to as Azariah, was a really great king. 2 Chronicles 26 and 2 Kings 15 tell us the story of this king. And much of his life could be marked by the word faithfulness. He began reigning at age 16, and get this, he reigned for 52 years. I think it's worth us recognizing the stability that was found through this king in the land of Israel. 52 years by a faithful king when all the other kings had short-lived and faithless lives. And what happens? What happens in the thoughts of the people when stability and constancy is questioned? Fear. Concern. Questions about what will happen next. I think our passage begins with a subtle reminder to us that while one king lied defeated by death, that doesn't mean that there's not a sovereign king sitting on the throne. And Isaiah sees that king. There's even a subtle message found in this chapter that we cannot and should not ever place our hope in the humanity of a leader. It will always end in their death. Their good reign will come to an end because death is sovereign over kings and leaders. Psalm 146 verse 3 says this, Put not your trust in princes in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. But church, we can put our hope not in a prince of man, but in the prince of all the universe, in the king of kings. And in this message, there's a clear yet subtle reminder that there's a greater king on the throne, always. In any age, there is a king who reigns. So may we not be tempted, as we will continue to be, 
May we not give in to the temptations to believe that a political leader is where we can find our ultimate hope. Election cycles will keep coming and we will keep being tempted with the messages that this one will be the one. He won't be. She won't be. No matter what platform they have, they will not be the one. We are still waiting for the King of Kings. But he will come. So Isaiah sees a new king sitting on the throne in a temple. And he's no normal king. This is a holy king. The text tells us that this king is high and lifted up. He's exalted. He's elevated. This language probably has two meanings in the sense that he's physically elevated on a throne up above everything surrounding in the room, and he's prominent. He's powerful. This king has all authority in all the universe. He reigns with majesty and authority. And we see it with a small detail about the train of his robe. In our day and age, we just don't have categories of kings like we used to, like societies used to have. It seems now the only time we talk about trains on garments is at a wedding day. But in past ages, the train on a robe was a, a visible reminder to everybody that they were in charge. There was power. There was might. There was glory. And this king who reigns on high, exalted and lifted high, has a train that fills an entire room. And as Isaiah sees this king exalted and lifted high, we realize he and the king aren't alone in the room. There's others present. We're told of these celestial beings that are flying around. Isaiah calls them seraphim. At first, we might be tempted to think that we can develop some kind of classification system of angels by these names that are given. Maybe we can. It's difficult to know. This is the only passage in the Bible that uses this word seraphim. What might be interesting to note is what that word means. If we were to be literal in our translation of it, we would call them the burning ones. That word seraphim relates to the Hebrew word for burn or burning. And isn't it interesting that these beings that exist hovering around this holy king are clothed in the same attire that God is often clothed with to demonstrate his own holiness. Deuteronomy 4 and Hebrews 12 say that the Lord our God is a consuming fire. When God appears to Moses, he comes as a burning bush. And Moses has to take the sandals off his shoes. Why? Because the ground is holy. So these creatures that proclaim God's holiness are decked out in the same attire of holiness. And even in all their glory, can you imagine the glory of a burning celestial being? Even in all their glory, they can't handle with unhindered eyes the glory of the king on the throne. 
We're told that they mask their faces at every moment to not gaze directly at the glory and the majesty of this king. So this God is so holy that glorious, holy beings shroud their face from him. They exist to do his bidding, yet they are fearful of looking at him in full. But they're not just there flying around. They're singing. They're chanting. They're screaming to one another. And this isn't the song of birds that's sweet and pleasing to the ear. This is a song of full body engagement. The text will tell us that the ground is literally shaking. So maybe less like a songbird and more like a jet engine that's rattling the ground underneath as they're simply speaking. Do you see the power that's going on? Do you feel the tension that's building as Isaiah's watching and looking at this scene? An elevated, exalted, glorious king, glorious, holy beings proclaiming earth-shaking, rattling images all around him as they say, holy, holy, holy. They don't just say it once. They don't even just say it twice. They say it three times. In our world today, when we want to emphasize a point, in writing, we put it in bold, or we underline it. We put do all three, and we control B, I, and U, all of it. And it's bold, italics, underlined. We increase the font size. But do you know what they did in Hebrew? They repeated themselves. So if you were speaking in Hebrew, and you wanted to emphasize how mad someone was, you would say that they're mad mad. If you wanted to talk about how big something was, you'd say it's big, big. And if you want to talk about how holy a king is, you say he's holy, holy. But these beings go even one step farther. They say that he's holy, holy, holy. In all of the literature we have written in Hebrew, this is the only time that there's a three-time repetition of a word like this. There is not a way to bold, to emphasize, to magnify the message of these burning, glorious beings. They are giving it all they've got to communicate to Isaiah and to us exactly what this God is like. They're even using a number that has meaning to them. Three carries this power and completeness. Everything about what they're saying is declaring to us today that this God that we serve is holy. And we can be really clear that God is holy and say God is holy and get the answer right, but it's worth us pausing and asking, what does that mean? What does it mean that God is holy? It's a tough word. As you can imagine, 
It's hotly debated. There's been tons of dissertations written on words like that. And it's a diverse word. It's used to describe God. It's also used to describe things used at the tabernacle. So how can this word be so broad in its meaning? And what does it even try to mean? Here's some helpful definitions that some folks smarter than you or I have put forward. J.I. Packer says it this way. This word signifies that everything about God is set apart from us. That there's a distinction about the things of us and the things of God. There's a separatedness between them. John Frame says that this word tells us that God is radically different than us. So in short, what does it mean that God is holy? It means that he's utterly unique. There is nothing else like him. In 1 Samuel 2, we have record of a prayer from Hannah. And Hannah says this, and it captures this idea so perfectly. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. There is nothing like him. And there's two ways, I think two really important ways we need to grasp God's utter uniqueness and his transcendence. Here's the first way, that God is completely independent and uncreated. Think of anything. Think of any noun, an object in the world. You have something in common with it. You were created by God. Yet think of God. He does not have that in common with you or the thing you were thinking about. Viruses need a host. Microscopic organisms need an environment to survive. Plants need sun, water, soil, and air. I think that's right. I think I told in that. And all greater life forms need some combination of food and supplement nutrients and oxygen or water. But God needs none of that. He creates all of that. Anything that you can imagine is different than God. Acts 17 says this, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. God doesn't need our service. He doesn't need our buildings. He doesn't need our worship. He exists completely sustained by himself. And everything else exists completely sustained by him. And that's why Psalm 90 can say, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And nothing else can be said from everlasting to everlasting. God is utterly unique. He is uncreated and independent. 
But there's a second way that we need to grasp God's holiness. It's that God is morally pure. He's morally pure. He's pure in every way to the highest degree. God has never sinned. Not one time ever has God done something questionably sinful. He's never even been tempted by sin. Can you imagine an existence like that? Not only has he not transgressed and done wrong, he's never seen wrong and thought, maybe? That kind of looks nice. Actually, I think I kind of, no, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. That's not God's experience. That's the best of us. But God never has even looked at sin and thought, yeah, I want to try that. He looks at it with a hatred because he is morally pure. I learned this this week, thinking about this idea of purity. You probably know that things like metals, like gold, can have impurities in them. And did you know that when you get to a certain level of gold, they start to use this expression where they want to know how many nines belong to the gold? So a two-nine gold would be it's 99% gold. There's two nines. And they go on to talk about three nines and four and five and six. And you think of how pure that gold is. It's 99.99999% gold. But there's no 100% gold. There is no gold that is completely gold. Every bit of gold has some level of impurity in it. And our God is 100% completely morally pure. There is not a little speck of sin, not a tiny little sliver of imperfection. Our God is utterly unique. He's so holy that myriads and myriads of celestial beings clothed in glorious holy fire all the time are doing the right thing in saying he is holy, holy, holy. This is his essential attribute. One commentator said that holiness is the bucket that contains all of the attributes of God. It comprises them all. J.I. Packer, who we heard from earlier, says that holiness covers all aspects of his transcendent greatness. All aspects of his greatness. He said, every facet of God's nature and every aspect of his character may properly be spoken of as holy. So thinking back to that Wikipedia article with the 27 definitions... Maybe I'm being a little too nuanced or too much of a smart aleck, but we should just add holy in front of all of them because his goodness is a holy goodness and his love is a holy love and his, judge, his justice and judgment is a holy justice and his kindness is a holy kindness. Every aspect of his is holy. Friends, tonight... We need to just acknowledge 
that God is far holier than we think about. We grow numb to that word. We grow numb to his glory and holiness. We don't often, and I say we because I'm, 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 I am including myself in this, we don't often have the appropriate reverence for this God that we should. So friends, let me encourage you tonight as we're taking this supper to be floored again by the fact that we can come into his presence at all. It's amazing, and it's amazing particularly when we see what Isaiah starts to do in the presence of God, right? Tonight we're going to take the Lord's Supper and commune with God and one another, and Isaiah is in the presence of God, and what does he do? He cries out. He cries out in fear. This leads to our next point, an unclean man. By seeing God, Isaiah gets clear eyes about himself. In the light of who God is, Isaiah can see more clearly who he is. This is just a principle of life and theology. That if you want to understand man better, you need to understand God better. Because we're made in the image of God, and we see a great contrast to us when we see God for who he is. So let's consider Isaiah's speech. And recognize this ought to be our same speech too. Isaiah begins by saying, woe is me, in verse 5. Woe is the opposite of blessing. This is a cursing formula. Isaiah is declaring out loud that he is doomed. He's cursed might be just good for us to remember that without God's intervention, us entering into the presence of God is not a good thing at all. It's guaranteed destruction. And Isaiah sees that, and he declares out loud, he's in trouble. He goes on to say that he's lost. It doesn't mean that he's existentially lost, like he lacks purpose or doesn't know his meaning in the world. No, this is a word that is used over and over again to talk about the destruction that happens to people. In Psalm 49, it's used to describe someone who's destroyed in judgment. In Zephaniah, it's used to talk about people being cut off. So Isaiah is looking at the scenario. He's reading the room, and he says, I'm going to die. This is the end. This is a damning thing for him. All because of his unclean lips. There's a part of me that wants to go, Isaiah, really, that's it? Like, you didn't have other garbage, you didn't have other sin? You could be like, well, actually, it's that. I don't think we should come away from this thinking, man, Isaiah was a really good guy. He just had one minor infraction. I think we should come away saying, God is so holy, one minor infraction is enough. There's a whole litany of things that any one of us could have mentioned, and I think there's a whole litany of things that Isaiah could mention. But the unclean lips is all it takes. 
one insignificant sin in our eyes is a huge sin before a holy God. Sinners being in the presence of God is a problem because he's a holy God. So, brothers, sisters, I just want to ask tonight, are you viewing your sin as you ought to? Do we hate it like God hates it? Do we fight it like God commands us to fight sin? Are we grieved by sin like we ought to be? All too often, I know in my own heart, I hate sin most when it inconveniences me. When it strains a relationship and now I have to work through that awkwardness. When it makes me lose an opportunity. When people will think of me differently. Those are all good, natural consequences that come through disobeying the Lord. But may we hate sin because it's sin against a holy God. May we not just hate it because it troubles our lives. May we do tonight what Isaiah did, that he saw God for the true holiness he has. May we examine our lives in light of this God. And may we confess our sin and let go of sin. As we take this meal do not hold fast to sin. We don't come to it as perfect people, but we certainly come very willing to let go of anything that is in the way of us knowing this God better. We can let go of sin because we have something better to hold on to. We let go of sin and we hold on to Christ, our only hope before a holy God. So let's consider our final point, a problem solved. Isaiah knew the outcome that was to come, his impending death. And yet, no seraphim grabs a burning sword and rushes to him and slices him in half. Instead, amongst the group of flying seraphims, one comes away. And on the way to Isaiah, they stop by an altar. And with a pair of tongs, they grab a burning coal. And the angel comes to Isaiah, the burning one, delivering a burning coal, can solve the problem. And the seraphim brings a piece of judgment to touch Isaiah and bring salvation. Did you notice where the angel touches him? His lips. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged that our merciful God gives mercy to the source of our greatest need. He doesn't just clean up our lives. He cleans up our sin. And the angel declares, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What's going on here? What is this coal from? 
From all that we can tell, this whole event is taking place in the temple. And there's a burning altar with a burned sacrifice on top of it. And this singular coal points us to our need for something to take our place. And that there is atonement through substitution. And this singular burning coal solves the tension of the story. That the holy God should rightfully bring judgment to the sinful man. And yet the holy God is so holy that he brings atonement. Brothers and sisters, God's holier than we can imagine. His perfect holiness bids us to back away in fear. Yet this God's same holiness draws him near to sinners. Isaiah 41 verse 14 says this, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. They are worms, but the Holy One doesn't run from them, nor does he come with judgment. He comes to help, and he comes to redeem. Or what about Hosea 11.9, where it says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. One commentator put it this way, God's holiness, which seems so forbidding and judgmental, is the means of our salvation. All of God's holiness, it's the essential attribute. It's not just his judgment that comes out of his holiness. So does his mercy and grace towards sinners. God's holiness is a redeeming holiness. So friends, what a glorious God. What an amazing God we serve. What a holy God we serve. While surrounded by burning angels and deserving to be burned alive, the burning sacrifice removes all of God's burning wrath. Romans 3, 23 through 25 describes God as the just and the justifier. God is the one who righteously makes sure sin is paid for. He's holy. He's morally pure. He does what's right. And yet our God makes a way to declare sinners who deserve justice to be accounted righteous. And friends, if a burning coal on an altar could do it, how much more the death of God's own son. Hebrews 9, 13 to 14 says this, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? Friends, that is what we rejoice in this evening. That's what we remember, that the holy God made a way through the death of his son so that we don't have to be afraid. We can sing 
Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I'll see thy lovely face. And we can mean it. We're not crossing our fingers going, I'm actually going to be more scared. I'm going to be like Isaiah, kind of trembling with the, the foundations. No, we can say it will be lovely. And we remember why it can be lovely. Because in Christ, all of your guilt is removed. And all of your sins are atoned for. So what should come to mind when we think about God? There are a number of attributes, but may we quickly proclaim that he is holy, holy, holy. And may this holy God, may we respond to him with fear and then take refuge in him. We do both. We fear and we hide in him. We don't hide from him, we hide in him. This is the beauty of God being the one who is just and the justifier. This is our hope. So brothers, sisters, let us think high and lofty thoughts of this high and lifted up king. May we cast aside sin. And may we rejoice because of the atonement that we have through the substitute of Christ. Join with me in prayer. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. Our minds cannot comprehend truly how unique and different you are. But Father, give us eyes to have faith. Give us minds to comprehend more tonight than we have before what it means that you are holy. May we have a right respect and reverence for you. And may we run to you for refuge. Father, help us to rejoice in what Christ has done and give us hope and anticipation for what we're still waiting for Christ to do. We pray this in his name, amen.